Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Hi. My name is Rachel, and I am the care pastor for Restore Sister Church, Moon Tower Church. And I have to tell you, teaching from the Bible is one of my all-time favorite things in the whole world. And so thank you, Restore, for having me here today. Now, before we dive in, I want us to think about problem solving. See, we humans, we're a creative bunch. And when we see something that we think can be improved upon or made more accessible, We create and invent, and we problem solve. But the trouble is that sometimes the solutions we come up with create new problems. Many of humanity's most incredible achievements have created some unintended consequences. In fact, this is such a reality that there's a whole area of study in sociology dedicated to unintended consequences because the ripple effect of these things is so vast and so varied. Now, when I was looking into this, for example, I discovered that in the United States, our federal budget and our reliance on individual income tax, which if you don't know, the federal income tax makes up 50% of our federal budget. That is in part an unintended consequence of the economic downturn that resulted after prohibition. Which means that 100 years ago, some really well-intended people wanted to solve the problem of alcohol abuse in this country. And to this day, our federal taxation system is still feeling the impact of their solution. Now, my nerdy self is thoroughly interested in little historical tidbits like this, but I admit it's fairly impersonal. So what about our daily lives? Well, in the wake of COVID, we have become more and more reliant on digital communication. I mean, the fact that I'm standing in a small room looking at a camera instead of at your wonderful faces is the most immediate example that comes to mind. But it's incredible. It's incredible that we live in a time and place where we can create a solution to a very real global problem And we have people like Pastor Chase and the entire Restore production team that can make this a reality. But I think we can also agree that this new solution has some unexpected and unintended consequences. I mean, doctors have already said that Zoom fatigue is a very real thing that many of us are experiencing now after a year of this. And now don't get ahead of me. I'm not making a pros and cons list about technology and the dangers of it or anything like that. I'm I'm not making a value judgment at all. I'm just reminding us that as humans, when we build systems meant to solve problems, that many times we end up creating new problems. And sometimes the solutions that we offer with the best and most noble of intentions can end up causing confusion or frustration, and in some cases, significant harm. Have you experienced this? 
Either you were trying to fix something and it blew up in your face, literally or metaphorically, or maybe you've been hurt by someone who was genuinely trying to be helpful. You see, as someone who studies the Bible and studies teaching methods, I've seen this dynamic play out in many different ways throughout church history specifically, and I've seen some of the unintended consequences and how they impact our modern churches today. And let's, let's give historic Christians the benefit of the doubt and say that the vast majority of them were genuinely trying to do good work and, and develop creative solutions to the problems they faced in their day. But the unintended consequences of their actions have resulted, in some cases, in catastrophic harm. And I'm not even talking about the like really big kind of yucky stuff that the church has participated in throughout the course of history. I'm not talking about the Crusades or the philosophy of manifest destiny and all the harm and yuck that came out of that. No, I'm talking about the more day-to-day Christian life stuff. I'm talking about the solutions that we have come up with throughout the centuries that today we just take for granted as part of Christian life. For example, Bible verses. Most modern English translations of the Bible are broken up into little pieces. We've got books, and within those books we have chapters, and within those chapters in some translations we have little sections broken up with subheadings, all the way down to little Bible verses. We've broken up the sentences into little pieces and we've numbered them. Now, in the scope of Christian history or the history of God interacting with God's people and God's people writing down and sharing God's story, this is a very recent addition. It's only been added in the last couple hundred years. So this is a very new solution that today we take for granted. And honestly, breaking scripture up into these little tiny bite-sized pieces is an incredible solution. An incredible solution to the problem of how do we make the Bible, how do we make scriptures easier to engage with and study? It's, it's been invaluable to have a chapter and verse reference system in modern study. If you want to know what Jesus says about a specific thing, I can point you directly to where you can find that. If you want to find a specific story, chapter and verse, here you go. But like most solutions, this one has had unintended consequences. Consider the issue of proof texting. That's what we call it when someone takes a verse or a few verses out of context and uses those verses to prove their point or to hold up their ideology or theology. Have you ever experienced this? Someone taking one verse and using it to argue a very complex or nuanced topic? Have you ever been that person? I have. I've been that person. And I've also been on the other side. I've been on the receiving side of someone taking a verse out of context and saying, no, you can't fill in the blank because the Bible says so. Drop mic, walk away. (laughs) These are some of the unintended consequences of breaking the Bible up into Bible verses. 
There's another piece of this that I want us to look at. Taking chapters of the Bible and breaking them up into sections, breaking up the paragraphs and adding little subheadings. This is a relatively new way of engaging with scripture, but it impacts the way that we study it and teach it. Consider this section in Luke's book. We call it chapter 15. It's broken up into three sections in most English translations, and it's given little subheadings. And the New International Version of the Bible, the subheadings read like this, the parable of the lost sheep. And then the next section, the parable of the lost coin. And the third section, the parable of the lost son. Now that last section, that last section is really popular. The lost son or the prodigal son. See, the church gets really excited about the story of the lost or prodigal son. See, we have taught this story. We've taken it out of its chapter, out of its broader context, and we've told it over and over so much so that it's become the framework for books and movies. And even currently, there is a television crime thriller show that is called The Prodigal Son. And I know this because when you Google prodigal son, you have to scroll halfway down Google's page before you even get to any reference to the Bible. This is a very popular story and the themes of it are so pervasive within the church that popular culture outside of the church looking in have taken these themes and the ways we have taught it. But maybe the prodigal son isn't the most important part of that story. How does Jesus introduce this story? Well, in Luke 15, 11, it says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. See, the main character in Jesus's story is the father. And if you read on, you discover that this father had two sons and both of the sons misunderstood the father's love for them and misunderstood the father's hopes for his family. It wasn't just the son who liked to party. And yet we, the church, have emphasized that one part of the story so much that the culture around us has picked up on our messaging. So wh what, am I even, what am I even trying to say? To some of you, it might sound like I'm just looking for ways to undermine the authority of scripture, which depending on your experience with church and scripture might be an exciting prospect or deeply hurtful. You might feel a little bit of defensiveness creeping up. And I hope that it's more of a relief than not that I do love the Bible. Like I said, the first thing I said was I love teaching the Bible. I trust the scriptures. They have high authority in my life. But I say all of these things because I want us to be able to engage with these stories in a way that is actually life-giving. And we'll find out in a moment that that's the reason that they were written. You see, I want us to be able to see all these things and I want us to have the tools in our tool belt so that when we go to the Bible, I want us to be able to navigate and avoid unintended harmful consequences of a particular reading and I want us to be able to pursue our flourishing. So with this 
in mind, with this framework, an eye out for the unintended consequences of a narrow reading of Scripture, I want us to look at a particular story. A story that we in the church, we have given a lot of attention to one part of the story that maybe is secondary to the main emphasis of the story. So if you have a physical Bible with you, you can flip with me to the book of John or you can boop, boop, hit it on your tablet or on your phone. Open up to the book of John at the end, chapter 20. And I want us to start reading in verse 24. See, what a great reference system. We can go to the exact same place in the Bible together. Now, many English translations have taken the section starting in verse 24, and we've removed it from the rest of the context. There's a little break in the paragraphs. And some of them have subtitles. The one I'm reading from has the little subtitle, Jesus Appears to Thomas. So here's the story. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we've seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, replied, I won't believe. I will not believe until, unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers in them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Now, eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, this time Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked, but suddenly, just as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Stop doubting and believe. My Lord and my God. Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The story of doubting Thomas. As early as the sixth century, we have murals in ancient churches depicting this scene, this intimate interaction between Jesus and Thomas in that time between his death, resurrection, and ascension. All Tommy Dowdy Pants was a whole hashtag mood for the Middle Ages and Renaissance artists. They were obsessed with this guy. And if you were raised in or spent much time around church, I'm sure that you have heard about doubting Thomas. And it's possible that you've heard reasons why you shouldn't be like him. But here's the thing. I think Tommy got a bum rap. I think that Tommy's bad reputation and all of the complicated theology and practices that have come out of our teaching of this story through such a narrow scope have caused some pretty harmful, hopefully unintentional, but harmful consequences throughout our modern churches. Just like the prodigal son throughout history, we have isolated this story from its surrounding context, and we have focused much of our attention on what we consider to be Thomas's failings, the cardinal sin of doubt, 
teaching this story in this way has led some churches to reject the practice of asking questions altogether. You should have just taken my word for it. We believe that, that doubt is a sign of weakness or faithlessness. And frankly, I know many people, too many, who have walked away from their faith and their faith communities because their questions were met with rejection or shame. And those are some deeply harmful consequences, especially if that's not even the main emphasis of this story. So what is happening in this story? Well, let's take a step back and look at just the rest of this chapter, John chapter 20. And at the beginning of this chapter, we see Mary Magdalene, and she's gone to the tomb where Jesus was buried, but Jesus isn't there. And so she runs back to her friends and she says, he's gone, his, his body is gone. And they believe her right away. No, that's not what happens. Peter and John jump up. They can't believe what she's saying. They run, they need to go see it for themselves. And so they run all the way to the tomb and Peter and John, John says that when he looks in, when he finally goes in and sees that the tomb is empty, then he believes. And he makes a point to clarify. It's not that he believed that Jesus is resurrected, but he believed that his body wasn't there anymore. It took both Peter and John seeing it with their own eyes to believe it. So then they go back full of confusion and frustration. They don't know what's going on. And Mary stands outside the tomb weeping. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus comes and in, has this encounter with Mary and when he calls her by name, she recognizes and sees him and clutches to him. And they have this beautiful encounter. And Jesus says, go tell the others, tell the others that I've resurrected, tell them what's happened. And she runs back and she tells the disciples, I've seen the risen Jesus. And then John is silent in his account as to how they reacted. No word of them believing her, no word of them having any reaction to her. It just skips down to the next story, which is the disciples, some of them were gathered together behind closed doors. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears to them. The risen Jesus appears to many of his friends and they're, they can't hardly believe it, but they're seeing it with their own eyes. And he blesses them and he anoints them with the Holy Spirit. And he says, now you are equipped to go out and do the ministry that I've prepared you for. And all of this takes place without Thomas. So in the chapter leading up to the story about Thomas, we see doubt and confusion and grief and fear and frustration being experienced and expressed by everyone, everyone until they see Jesus firsthand, until they see it with their own eyes. So then we find out that Thomas wasn't in the room. And Thomas has yet to see or interact with the risen Jesus. And even though his friends tell him everything that they've experienced, he declares, unless I see the nail marks, unless I touch them with my own hands, I will not believe. I will not believe. An adult person saying, I will not do something. Does that sound like doubt? You see, earlier throughout John's book, 
we learn bits and pieces about Thomas, who he is and how he functions within the circle of friends around Jesus. You see, he's a pragmatist. He's very concrete. He's very little, literal, very deliberate. If Thomas was numbered in the Enneagram, I think he'd be a five. Maybe he was an INTJ in Myersburg. See, we see Jesus interacting with Thomas a little bit earlier on in John's story. This is before Jesus is arrested while he's standing around with his friends and he's teaching them and he's talking about them. He said, my father's house has many rooms and I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will go before you and you will know the way. And Thomas is sitting at the table looking around. So did you? No. Do you know where we're going? Did you get the address? Well, I want to be, I want to be where Jesus is, but I didn't, I didn't get the address. So Thomas looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, we, we don't know where you're going. And so we don't know the way. This is before GPS. Nobody could drop Thomas a pin. He genuinely wanted to be where Jesus was going to be. And he was confused. And Jesus lovingly looks at him and says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. See, Jesus knew Thomas. Jesus knew how he functioned and thought about the world. He knew that when he invited Thomas to follow him, and he knew that the church needed people like Thomas when he chose him to be an apostle. See, Jesus knew. So what is Thomas doing in this story that we just read? See, to me, it doesn't sound like Thomas is full of doubt. No, this sounds like a trauma response. You see, in the grief of having his mentor, his teacher, his friend, arrested and then gruesomely publicly executed. And that just happened in the last couple weeks. Thomas is coping with it all with denial. He declares, I will not believe. In fact, I reject the testimony of my most trusted friends. I will not believe. Because let's, let's put ourselves in his shoes for a minute, church. What could possibly be worse? That this person who we love, who we've dedicated the last several years of our lives to following to, whose ideas about love and living have radically reframed everything about our lives. Either this person really is dead and gone or miraculously, this person has come back from the dead and spent time with every one of your friends except you. Can you imagine? Can we even begin to wrap our heads around what Thomas was feeling? So Thomas, to try to protect himself from more harm, from more trauma, he sets up an emotional guardrail. He's trying to protect himself. He says, this far no more, I will not, I cannot. And what does Jesus do? See, Jesus meets 
Thomas exactly where he is. Jesus is not surprised by Thomas's response. Because remember, Jesus knows Thomas. He knows how he thinks and how he functions. And in this interaction, Jesus is not condemning or even the slightest bit upset. No, instead, Jesus repeats back to Thomas exactly what Thomas said he needed. Jesus meets him where he is and meets his specific personal needs. And when Jesus does this, Thomas, overwhelmed by Jesus' compassion, declares, my Lord and my God. Now this next sentence, this next verse, it gets us into trouble again especially when we isolate it from the last few sentences of this chapter, when we remove it from the end of the chapter and read it just in connection to Thomas. It says this, Then Jesus told him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Some of us throughout church history have taken this verse to mean Jesus is standing there wagging his finger at Thomas. What, what, you had to see me? You had to see me to believe? You couldn't just take their word for it? And the unintended consequence of such a reading perpetuates shame around asking questions and people seeking answers. Some of us have taken this blessing. Jesus offered a blessing but we have taken it and we've turned it completely inside out to mean something like cursed are those who experience doubt or confusion or frustration or grief. But instead, alternatively, if we read it within the context of the end of the chapter, if we read it within the context that John put it, we get this. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these, these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. <sighs> See here, Jesus blesses those of us who don't have the benefit of walking with him in person, but who believe today because of the trustworthy testimony of his friends like John. See, John makes it clear that that's the reason he wrote any of this down in the first place. John knows, he knows, just like Jesus, which is why Jesus made the blessing, but John knows that there are a lot more people out here in the world who have never interacted with Jesus. There are so many people that don't know what it's like to have the sore feet after walking 
from Galilee to Jerusalem with Jesus. John knows there are a lot of people that don't have that memory. He knows that there are a lot more people out there who don't have the memories of sitting around a meal with Jesus and they don't get the inside jokes that you just, you just had to be there that day on the boat with Jesus. You just had to be there to get it. John knows that there are a lot more people on the outside of those jokes. But you see, John also knows. He also knows that Jesus is the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, and that out of his fullness, we all receive grace upon grace. See, John knows that God so loved the whole world that he sent his son Jesus into the world that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life because God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn it, but to save the whole world through him. See, John knows that the enemy of our lives has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but through Jesus, we might have life and life abundantly. So John writes all of these stories, not because we shouldn't have doubts, but precisely because he anticipates us having questions and being confused. And he wants to answer as many of those questions as he can, because he knows that Jesus is who he said he was, that he did what he said he would do, that he is the Messiah, son of God. And that when we believe in him, we have access to the life that God wants for us, a life with access to peace and joy and hope, the life that we all were created for. So what, so what do we do with this story now? I just, I just threw a whole bunch at you, and that might feel like a little bit of a problem. How do we walk away holding on to bits and pieces of this? Well, I have a solution and I hope that it's helpful and that any unintended consequences aren't so harmful. You see, when I hear a Bible story presented, especially presented in a new way, I ask myself two questions. What did I learn about people? And what did I learn about God? You see, when asked, Jesus said, the most important thing for us to do, the most important rule to follow is to love God and to love people. So what do we learn about people and about God? Well, first, people. This story reminds us that people are a mess. <laughs> and our experience and our systems are messy. We all experience doubt and confusion and grief and fear. See, all of the disciples, everyone in this story experienced those things. And still, they showed up for each other. Even when Thomas put his foot down and he said, I can't or I won't believe. What did his friends do? They keep inviting him. 
at no point was kicking him out for asking questions or ruffling feathers, even an option on the table. No, they stayed by his side and they walked with him through the hard things until he met Jesus. So church, that's our job. That's what we do. That's what we learn about people in this story is that we keep showing up for each other in the midst of the mess. So if you're feeling like Thomas today, if you feel like you have more questions than answers and are dealing with frustrations and doubts and after the week we've just had, there might be more of us in that camp than not. If you're feeling hurt and you've set up some boundaries in your life to protect yourself from future hurt, I can attest that Restore and the people here have been a good, a good place to walk through my own mess in the last several months. And so Restore, that's what we do. We keep showing up for each other. And second, what does this story teach us about God? Well, just like the story of the father who had two sons, the father in that story ran out to the son who was still a long way off. See, in this story, Jesus shows us that there is nothing, not a thing that will stop God's love from meeting us where we are. We might draw the line in the sand. We might create barricades, but in his kindness and in his compassion, Jesus will always draw near to the brokenhearted. Jesus is not afraid of or deterred by or upset in any way when we have questions or confusion or doubts. No, in fact, the scriptures say that God knows what we need before we even ask for it so we can ask. We can tell Jesus precisely, specifically what we need. There is nothing that will make God ignore or dismiss our requests or our pleas when we cry out. So with that in mind, I want to invite us to pray. Lord Jesus, Son of God, our big brother in the faith who has gone before us to prepare a place for us, but who also meets us where we are, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that there is power and life in your name. Thank you that you came into the mess of this world, but you also overcame. Forgive us, God, for the harm that our systems have caused, unintended or not. Forgive us for the ways that we have used or misused your scripture and we put up hurdles between people and your love. Lord, forgive us. 
Help us, Lord, to release our grip on some of the more harmful consequences of our systems, but cling, Lord, to your goodness because, Jesus, you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. Remind us by your spirit that there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from your goodness and your love. And for that, Lord, we praise you. So it is in the powerful name of Jesus that I pray these things. And for all of us that agree, we say, 